you're doing well today. Uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to Psalm 51. Uh, if you have a print Bible, you can just kind of split your Bible in half and probably be pretty close. Don't try that with your phone. It won't turn out too well for you. Um, but as we're trying to find this, I'm going to say a prayer. Uh, and then after that, um, tell a little story so you have plenty of time to find it. Let's pray together as we get going. Father, I thank you so much for being an incredibly gracious God like we just sang about. For being a God who so freely gives of yourself, who so freely gives to us um, what we uh, cannot obtain on our own. And God, right now, I just recognize that your word is powerful. So I ask that you would speak to our hearts and our minds today and shape our hearts and minds to better see you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, as you're finding Psalm 51, I want to tell a little story that will help us understand Psalm 51 a little bit better. This is a story about a king who found himself doing what kings are known to do from time to time, which is whatever they want, right? It's just kind of the king way. And so this king uh, had a moment where he was supposed to be leading his army off to battle. It was time for that, and he decided he was just going to stay back. Maybe he thought, hey, I've been faithful for a long time. I've won a lot of battles. I've earned a rest. But we don't know the reason, but we do know that this king stayed behind when he was supposed to be at war. So the king has a moment where he finds himself bored, and so he goes out onto the roof of his um, palace, and he looks around, and as he's looking, the king sees a beautiful woman bathing. So what does the king do? Well, he asks a servant to come to him. He asks the servant, hey, who is this beautiful woman? The servant says, hey, that's the wife of one of your soldiers who's off at war. The king replies to the servant and sends the servant to go get the beautiful woman, bring the beautiful woman to himself. And so that night, the man or the king and the woman spend the night together. We don't know the uh, woman's response, but we know that this is the king. She didn't really have much of an option. The next day, the woman goes home, we assume, and just a few weeks later, the woman sends a message to the king. The woman is pregnant. Now, this is a problem because, again, the um, soldier, her husband, is off at war, fighting the battle that the king should be present for. So what does the king do? Well, he comes up with a great idea. He will send for the soldier. So the king sends for the soldier, asks the soldier to come back, reunite him with his wife for a reward for being such a faithful soldier. What a kind king, right? So he sends off for the soldier. The soldier comes back only when the soldier gets back to the palace and hears from the king what the king would like the soldier to do, to go enjoy his wife's company. The soldier can't bring himself to do it. The soldier remembers his commander who's off at war. He remembers all his comrades who are sleeping in tents and in open fields. And he thinks, I can't possibly go and enjoy the company of my wife while these men are off at war, can I? It's like the king could have learned something from the soldier. So since this didn't work, the king decides, you know, that this problem is a big problem, but it's no problem a little alcohol can't solve. So what does he do? He invites the guy over for another night, gets the guy drunk and says, go be with your wife, thinking surely this will solve my problem. But the soldier still chooses to sleep at the gate to the palace, chooses not to go to be with his wife. So the king shifts from plan A to plan B. The king sends the soldier back to the front lines with a 
letter for the commander, a letter that would prove to be his own death sentence. The letter's taken to the commander. The instructions are that the commander is to send this soldier to the front lines. The commander is then to signal for a retreat without letting this soldier know so that the soldier will be killed on the front lines. And sure enough, this is exactly what happens. The king believes he has successfully covered up his grievous sin. And what does he do? Well, he welcomes in the beautiful woman to be his wife. They um, go ahead, they come together, and the king thinks he's just going to move on, right? The king thinks, everyone will just believe that I met the love of my life and chose to make her my wife. So he just tries to move forward, but there's a little problem for this king. See, God knows what the king has done. In fact, God is well acquainted with this king, so God sends a prophet to see the king. The prophet goes to the king and tells the king, hey, king, I've got a story for you. And the king thinks, who doesn't love a good story, right? So he tells him a story. Okay, so there was this village, and in this certain village, there were two men. One of the men was really rich. The rich man was a man who had many sheep. He had a large flock. He had a lot of cattle. Everything was great for this rich man. But there was another man, a poor man. And the poor man only had one little lamb. This little lamb was a lamb that was actually more of a family member than a lamb. Uh, It tells us that that this, this lamb was one who grew up in the house of this poor man. He drank from the poor man's cup. He slept in the poor man's arms. And the poor man describes him as if he's like a daughter to him, which I don't think really sounds too great for the rest of his daughters, but we won't get into that for now. We'll just move forward with the story um, because we see that the poor man really loved this lamb. Well, the rich man then has a traveler come through town. The traveler is coming to um, stay with this rich man and the rich man knows that he must feed this traveler. So what's he do? Does he send off for one of his sheep? No. He goes and takes the sheep from the poor man. He has the sheep slaughtered and prepared for the traveler. At this point, the king can't take any more of the story. He cuts the man off and says, or cuts the prophet off and says, this man must be dealt with right now. This justice must be dealt with um, swiftly. This, This man must not just pay one times, but four times the offense that he has committed here. This is outrageous. To which the prophet responds, you are that man. The king is instantly crushed. He confesses his sin, but then he's crushed by the weight of the consequences of his sin. You see, the the king is, is told that the baby that they had conceived will now die because of the sin of the king. The king is crushed, and as the baby is living, the king does, he has this moment where he just mourns and he weeps, but then when when the baby dies, there's a moment where the king does something that's really confusing. He washes himself, and he goes, and he worships. He worships the God in this moment, right after being crushed by the consequences of his sin. So I think the question we want to ask today is, what is it that this king knew about the heart of God that allowed him to respond to the crushing weight of sin and the consequences of sin 
with worship instead of something else. Because I don't know about you, but sometimes I find myself a little bit like this king trying to cover up my sin, trying to just sweep it under the rug, thinking I can just move on without dealing with it. But in Psalm 51, we're going to see a guide that shows maybe a little bit better way to handle our sin. If you don't know this story, this is a story of a guy in the Bible by the name of King David. King David wrote more psalms than anyone else, and he was described as a man after God's own heart. And in this psalm, we're going to see that this man who was a man after God's own heart was slapped in the face with the heart of the God he was running after. It was in this moment of brokenness and sin that he got to see God's heart and become well acquainted with it once again. We see that this King David, who was so great, was actually just as broken as anyone else. Psalm 51 starts with this heading is is found at the top of Psalm 51. It says, "Um, for the choir director, a Psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after he had gone to Bathsheba. Now, it's been said that the most important thing about man is what man thinks about when he thinks about God. That's something that I think A.W. Tozer said, and I think it's a pretty powerful truth, and it's why we are walking through in this series and looking at God's character. It's why we looked at God's sovereignty in week one, why we looked at God's faithful love last week, and why today we are going to look at God's gracious heart towards us. Because if we don't understand God's heart towards us, I don't think we're going to understand how to respond to our sin. So let's dive into this and see again, what is it that David knew about God that allowed him to respond in worship rather than being crushed? So Psalm 51 verses 1 and 2 says this, Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion." Completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. David recognizes here that he has a problem. He needs God to blot out his rebellion, to cleanse him, to wash away his sin and his guilt. He needs God to do something that he can't do on his own. Here David uses three different words to describe this offense against God. Right? He uses that word rebellion, guilt, and sin. So let's think about those three words for a minute. First, that word rebellion. Now, last or last time I preached just a few weeks ago, we looked at, or I told you that my um, wife had gotten a new rug for Christmas, okay? And if you've ever gotten a new rug or like a new piece of furniture, you know that normally what you have to do is kind of decide like, okay, so are we like eating in this room with this rug now or not? Like, is this like a go for red Kool-Aid or no go for red Kool-Aid, right? That's normal, yeah? You need to like have those things agreed upon so that when something happens, because it's not if, but when something happens, you know, like, is this person guilty or not? Um, So this type of idea could could maybe reflect a little bit about what we're thinking about with rebellion. If we agreed no red Kool-Aid on new carpet, which which seems pretty reasonable, and then I went in there with red Kool-Aid and set it down as my kids played and just sat there like, nothing had happened. This would be me acting in rebellion to our relationship. That would be a breach of what we had agreed upon for guardrails for our relationship. This is what that word rebellion refers to. It's this breach of relationship. So David says, I have rebelled against you, Lord. This is this idea of him breaching the relationship with God. He has breached this relationship. 
Now that second word there is the word guilt. And this word guilt describes how you can't really separate actions from consequences. So with this example, once again, if I go into our living room with this new rug and I take my red Kool-Aid and I dump the red Kool-Aid on the rug, it's not like I can say, all I did was dump the cup out. I don't know how that happened, right? No, the action and the consequence of the action go together. They cannot be separated. I am guilty both of an action and the consequences are upon me in a way that that I can't get out from under it, right? So what does he say there in verse two? He says, completely wash away my guilt. He recognizes he needs God to do something about his guilt, about the fact that his action and the consequences from his action cannot be separated. And then that third word is that word sin, which is this word for the idea of missing the mark. This is the whole idea that me going into the living room with a cup, setting it next to my four-year-old and just assuming nothing would happen, that's me missing the mark. I'm missing the guide that we had laid in front of us. That third word for sin refers to missing the mark. And these three words are used together to describe the same offense, to show just the depth of David's offense against God. Just how great it was. It's not like he's just trying to describe three different things. He's using three words just to show what a big deal this sin against God was. So what's an appropriate response to such an offense? Well, I think Psalm 51 provides each of us a guide whenever we think about how to respond to our sin. And it starts out with David's cry. He says, be gracious to me, God. Now, what did David mean by be gracious to me? Well, David's kind enough to like spell it out for us in this chapter. Jump to the end of that verse. Be gracious to me. What would this look like? It would mean that God would blot out his rebellion. And then jump to verse two. It would mean that he would completely wash away his guilt, that he would cleanse him from his sin. David was calling on God to act graciously toward him by forgiving him, by washing away his guilt, by cleansing him from his sin. So grace meant a wiping away of what David had done. And this call for grace is a call for a heartfelt response from God, for God to offer something that David could not bring on his own. Now, unfortunately, I think sometimes whenever we think about the idea of asking God for grace or coming to God for grace, sometimes we, we have this wrong-headed idea that this grace is really just something that God owes us anyways. We may not say that out loud, but whenever we come to God and ask God for grace, we oftentimes kind of have this attitude of God, be gracious to me because of my goodness. God, be gracious to me because I'm deserving. God, be gracious to me because maybe what David was thinking in this moment, I've done so much for you. Maybe that's what he was thinking early on whenever he chose to stay back for more, that he deserved this. But in this moment, that's not what David was crying. David's not crying out, hey, be gracious to me because of my goodness. Be gracious to me because of all the great things I've done for you, God. Here, David is crying out, be gracious to me because he has no other option. You see, whenever we think about this idea of God being gracious, we can't think that it's something God owes us. Rather, the foundation of our cry to God to be gracious must not lie in who we are or what we deserve, but it must lie in who God is. So if we're going to see that grace is something we can receive from God, we have to understand what God's heart is towards us. David embraces that he has a problem he can't solve on his own. 
Now, just a few weeks ago in um, I, my small group, we had a moment where we kind of shared our stories and we had some prompts for that. And one of them was to share like three pillars. What were three significant moments that, that kind of marked our life and our faith with God? And as I thought and I prayed through that, the first big moment for me was a moment where I came face to face with the fact that I could no longer control my sin like I thought I could. See, I lived a lot of my life thinking that I had sin under control, that I could just stop this whenever I wanted. I was a good kid who was at youth group all the time. I went to summer camps. I did uh, mission trips. I did all these wonderful things. And yet on the inside, I was a wreck. I was trying to control my own sin. And yet I was stuck in in a pattern of, of sexual sin in this moment where it actually led to a time where I ruined a bunch of relationships and I hurt a bunch of other people. This led to a moment where I had to reckon with the fact that I can't clean myself up on my own. So what am I gonna do? How is it that I can move forward? Well, thankfully at this time, someone actually gave me, I got a couple different Bibles. It was around the time I was graduating. This was a time where I started to read through the gospels. And what I was blown away by was both by Jesus's teaching saying, did Jesus really say this? If so, that changes things. But then I also saw something else in Jesus. I saw that Jesus loved to be around people that were just like I felt. People who were a mess people who couldn't overcome their sin on their own, people who needed something outside of themselves to come in and rescue them. See, I had this time where I had to transition from seeing that sin was something that was up to me to control or even that that was the goal that God had for me and to see that God is gracious at his core. And whenever I began to see that God is gracious, it started to change things. See, because God is gracious, I no longer felt like I had to prove myself. I no longer felt like I had to clean myself up. It's not that I didn't have to actually like make up for my sin as if that were even possible or were even the goal. Rather, I saw that I could throw myself at the feet of Jesus and trust that who he is at his core is a gracious God. I could come to Jesus, not with, okay, Jesus, this is why you should offer me forgiveness, but I could come to Jesus with David's words there in verse one, God, be gracious to me, not because Andrew Bondurant's so great, but according to your faithful love and according to your abundant compassion. Started to see a little bit more of who God was at his core. And this is good news. See, David knew that he could just throw himself at God's feet when his sin was exposed and whenever he felt this crushing weight of the consequences of his sin because he knew that God was a God full of, like Andy said last week, hesed, this idea of this faithful love. God is full of that. Not only that, but God is full of abundant compassion. It's like his compassion is just overflowing. This is who God is at his core. This is good news for each and every one of us in this room because I think that like having a moment of reckoning with our sin, with the fact that we can't control our sin, that's not just a one-time thing you have. It's not like you have that moment one time where you're like, oh yeah, I was really sinful. I better run to Jesus. And then we never need that again. 
maybe that's your story, but it's not been mine. I've had to come back to God's grace over and over again to try to figure out how to move forward in a healthy way. But the truth that God is gracious changes everything. So are you in a place right now where maybe you think, well, my sin is too big? God wants to receive you. God wants to offer forgiveness. Are you in a place where you think, no, I've been stuck in this habit of sin forever. God is sick of hearing me call out for grace. God would say, come, I want to receive you. I want you to experience my grace and to have my grace change things for you. God wants to do something new in you. It starts with us seeing who God is. Now, David goes on in verse three through six, and he says this. He says, for I am conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, or you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Surely you desire integrity in the inner self and you teach me wisdom deep within. David here stresses the grip that sin had on his heart. This wasn't, again, something he could just throw aside on his own. No, this was something that was deeply ingrained that he needed God to come in and do something about. So he goes on in verses 7 through 10, and he says this. He says, purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow, even the snow we didn't get yesterday. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins and blot out all my guilt. God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. God is a creating God, and David recognizes this in this moment. So what does David cry out for? Well, he cries out for God to create a new heart in him. And this word for create is a word that in the Old Testament is only ever used with God as the subject. This is something that God and God alone can do, and yet it's something that each and every one of us need. We need this cleansing that can come from God and God alone. And y'all, I wanted to remind you of who it is writing this. This is King David, a man who is described as a man after God's own heart. A man who four chapters before we see that moment with um, Bathsheba, that comes in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Well, back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, there's a moment where God makes a covenant with David saying, David, you're my guy. There will be a king on the throne in Israel forever that will come from your line. I am choosing you. This David is a David who wrote more psalms than anyone else. The one who's sitting there on the hill, nice and peaceful, playing his harp, singing, the Lord is my shepherd. This David is the David who in this moment says, God, be gracious to me. God, create in me a new heart. This is good news for each and every one of us because it means that grace isn't just something that gets us in the door, but grace is something that carries us forward. Grace is something that can and will transform us. Grace is something we need to dive deeper into. 
David has a moment here where he says, create in me a new heart, but he's not asking God for some new salvation to come upon this. How do I know this? Well, jump down to verse 12. If you have your Bible, he says, restore the joy of your salvation to me. Not restore to me a new salvation, but restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. This is good news because it means that regardless of where any of us in this room are, we can throw ourselves at the feet of our gracious God and trust that he will freely show his love and grace to us. Oftentimes we have a limited view of God that prevents us from dealing with sin well. We have this limited view of God that gets us stuck in these patterns thinking again that we must kind of just or make it on our own after grace gets us in the door. But we all need just to dive deeper in his grace. So just think, do you need a fresh encounter of God's grace today? Is that something you need in your heart and in your life? Well, this is who God is at his core. How can I say that? Well, it's how God has revealed himself through scripture. See, there was this moment where God gave the Ten Commandments to the people of Israel back in Exodus chapter 20. And and the people of Israel could hear them. And after the Ten Commandments, they're like so terrified from God's voice that they then send Moses up on the mountain. They're like, yeah, you go hear from him. We're going to stay down here. And then like 30 minutes later, after receiving the Ten Commandments, the people decide that they're going to build a golden calf to worship. Therefore, like violating the first two commandments they had just received. So you have this moment where the nation of Israel does that and and Moses intercedes for the people asking God to uh, intervene for the people to uh, continue to love them and care for them. And after that, in Exodus 34, you have this moment where Moses asks God to reveal himself. And again, this is the Old Testament. Oftentimes we're told that the Old Testament God's just a God of judgment and justice, right? But how is it that God reveals himself to Moses. He passes by him, and then he says something that is found throughout the rest of the Old Testament multiple times. In fact, it pops up in Psalm 103, verse 8. Look at what he says. This is how God reveals himself in this moment. Psalm 103, verse 8. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding and faithful love. He will not always accuse us or be angry forever. And then uh, David goes on maybe to, to just kind of build upon this idea that's found in Exodus 34. He says, he has not dealt with us as our sins deserve or repaid us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his faithful love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. This is who God is at his core. Here in this passage, we see that God's graciousness draws sinners to himself. And this is good news for each and every one of us because sin loves to take root in our heart, which means that God's grace is drawing each and every one of us to himself, saying, come here, let me do something about this pattern you're stuck in. Let me do something. You don't have to clean yourself up. But like Paul says in Romans 5, God sent Christ for us while we were enemies of God. 
While we were still stuck in our sin, that's when Jesus came. Not when we cleaned our stuff up. Not when we got our act together. No. Our God is a gracious and compassionate God. Slow to anger. And this is most clearly seen in Jesus. See, once again, David is this king who comes and is tempted and he falls. And yet Jesus is a king who comes in the line of David. And yet when he is tempted, Jesus stood firm. Jesus pressed forward through every trial he faced in this life and went to the cross for you and for me. What's that mean? It means we have the chance to experience new life because of him. Because Jesus stood firm under temptation, you and I have hope when we don't stand firm under temptation. I think sometimes we think that the, the greatest like, fear we have is our sin being exposed. But if you look at the story with David, you see that David actually experienced some freedom when sin went from darkness into light. So what I want to do is we um, prepare just to move forward in our services to challenge you to pray some words from a prayer that David had in Psalm 139. We're going to have 90 seconds with these words on the screen. I want you to pray and just write down whatever it is that comes to mind as you pray this prayer. Here's what Psalm 139, 23 and 24 says. It says, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concern. See if there is any offensive way in me. Lead me in the everlasting way. You know, David experienced a moment of incredible grace whenever he was confronted by Nathan. And how does he respond to that sin that was in the dark being brought to light? Well, David responds with confession. He confesses that to God. He brings it before him. He doesn't try to handle it on his own. And I think that that maybe brings to light something that can bring some more freedom for us, and that's to actually confess sin. One of the most powerful truths, I think, in Scripture is found in 1 John 1, 9, where John says this. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Here in just a minute, we're going to celebrate that with the Lord's Supper. But before we get there, I'm going to challenge you to do something that's probably a little bit uncomfortable. I know you love it whenever someone up here says that, right? My challenge is to take that thing in this week to find someone else, a follower of Jesus, to actually confess that to. Find someone else to speak that out to. James chapter 5, verse 16 says this. It says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. See, sometimes I think that we are afraid that if we confess our sins to other people in the church, that that person will think less of us, that we will then be smashed down, that we will be crushed under this weight of condemnation. And I think that's a little bit of how I saw Nathan's words up until even just last night. I was reading and praying back through this, and I've always thought of Nathan's words being as, you are that man, gotcha. 
But if what we know to be true about God's heart really is what's happened, I can imagine Nathan's words being, you are that man, David. In fact, in that passage, Nathan goes on to outline these things God has done for David. And Nathan even says, if there was more that God could have done, he would have done it. You are that man. So what I want to encourage you with is find someone else and share that with. And if you're that someone that someone shares something with, recognize that you get to be the voice of Jesus in that conversation, affirming what Jesus has always already said to be true. Which is that if we confess, God is faithful and just to forgive. So as another person, we can just say back to them, know that God eagerly forgives you. It's not something he does reluctantly. And I know sometimes we can think about confession as being something that belongs to the Roman Catholic Church. And so I want you to know that's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is being obedient to James 5. So if you come forward and you confess to me up here, I'm not your mediator between you and God. Instead, I'm going to point you to your mediator who is Jesus and allow you to see what Jesus says to be true about you. So text somebody, set up a time. Grab somebody in this room before you leave. Come forward and talk with one of us. Before we reach that point, we are going to have this time celebrating the Lord's Supper together where we remember that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection really has changed things. We look back and we see how he has freely offered grace, but we also look forward to a day where we will sit around a table and share a meal with him because of his sacrifice, because of his blood and his body. So I'm going to give you guys some time to reflect, take that on your own, and then I'll come up and pray to wrap that moment.